The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. You're listening to an encore presentation of Pilgrim's Progress. We will not be taking calls today. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin is living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Romans, the eighth chapter, I'm sorry, Romans, the seventh chapter, beginning with verse 14 through 19. This is historically in the American church, described as our condition before God. I was watching a video this week. It was a a video of a maybe a six-story building, high-rise apartment, and it was on fire. And as you watch this video, there is one construction worker stuck on the top balcony on one end of this building, and the flames are climbing high. And you can hear the people saying, Jesus, look, he's going to die. People are very, very concerned. They're filming this from a neighboring apartment dwelling. And as you watch this man with these balconies without railings, climbs to the edge, drops himself off, holding himself by his hands, swings his feet, and is able to drop down onto the balcony just under the one he was standing on. Everyone is excited he's going to make it. The flames are going higher. The wood framing is exploding. The roof is exploding. And then suddenly you see the ladder from a fire truck slowly inching its way toward him. Before the ladder even reaches him, he leaps for it. And they begin to withdraw the ladder. And just as they've begun to withdraw the ladder, The sides collapse down, almost catching him, but he is safe. I saw that and I began to understand, even in a more significant way, this earth is on fire. And there are construction workers, there are people going about doing their business, doing the work that they do in order to make their living, But the building is on fire. The earth is on fire. The economy worldwide is collapsing. The dollar will soon go to zero in value. It is a fiat currency, meaning there is nothing behind the currency to back it up. And so at some point, it is going to utterly, totally collapse. As we look at this issue, how do we escape? How do we escape a burning world? We can't drop down balcony by balcony. There has to be another way of escape. It's that escape that we call the gospel, the good news. 
when we look at the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. He asks the question, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And his answer is absolutely no. By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And then chapter 6, in way of review from yesterday, walks us through the reality that a man can only be connected to Jesus Christ by going through crucifixion. The only avenue of escape is Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we will be burned with the earth. When we come to the seventh chapter, I want to walk carefully through this with you. The seventh chapter of the book of Romans is divided into three sections. Verses 1 through 6 shows us how how death frees us from the law. Verses 7 through 13 shows us that the law reveals sin. It uncovers sin. And then verses 14 through 25 shows that even though the law is good, it cannot deliver from sin. Now, the reason I'm sharing that, it's it's vital that you come to the context of this passage that I shared at the beginning. It's vital that you understand that the Apostle Paul is going to speak about the law and the role the law has in salvation. He begins, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So he is quoting to us now the law. The law is in effect as long as a person is alive. So every person who walks in sin is under the law, and therefore the penalty of the law will be applied to their life. Now, the lie of Gnosticism comes into our culture and says, Oh, no, no, no. The flesh is wicked, but the spirit is gold. It is righteous. And so when I die, they say, my sins will be removed from me, and I'll be in heaven with Jesus for eternity. And so we get this lie of the sinning Christian. It's an oxymoron. It's impossible. It's two opposite things. It's saying that we can connect a corpse to Jesus Christ because everyone who is under the law is dead in their sins and their transgressions. And so we've been taught, look, accept Jesus as your Savior. Confess those few things that you can remember that were sin. And you're saved. You're good to go. And now you're going to spend the rest of your life at whatever level you can struggling against the sin in your life. But you're always going to sin and you're always going to fail. That's just life. What a horrible, horrible understanding of the gospel. It's a false understanding. It's not true. It's a lie. From beginning to end, it is a lie. I want to show you that out of the seventh chapter of Romans. Verse 4. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ 
You died by going through the cross with Jesus Christ. You died by being crucified. A Christian, so-called, who has not been crucified, will continue to walk in his sin. He will feel guilty. He will be embarrassed. And then some finally come to the point where they say, look, I trust Jesus. This is who I am. God's going to have to just accept me the way I am because it's who I am. I'm a sinner. That is not going to work with Jesus. He will not accept a sinner who has been unwilling to die. And to die means I cut off everything of darkness in my life. I die to my own life. I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I ask for his divine authority to be exercised over my life. And he now takes charge of my entire life. But let me show you. So my brothers in verse, this is chapter 7, verse 4. You also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another. In other words, you belong to Satan. As long as you're under the law, you belong to Satan. And so you struggle against his bondage. And you're never quite successful. You have to die to that law. You have to die to the bondage of Satan in order to belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. What is the fruit we bear to God? Galatians, the same author as the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, says love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness. Those are the, the fruit of the Spirit. He wants us to bear fruit to God. That fruit is righteousness. It is something he places in us. He gives it to us. And then we grow up in that faith. We grow up in that righteousness. Not continuing to walk in sin, but maturing. And I tell you again, I'll spend the first million years in heaven just growing up but not sinning against Jesus. Verse 5, For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, I want you to notice, he is saying, in the past, when we were controlled by the sinful nature. He's speaking to men and women who are Christians. He's saying, now we are no longer controlled by the sinful nature. So, if you are still controlled by your sinful nature, You are not a Christian by definition. You may be very religious. You may even go to church. You may even try hard. But you're not a Christian. A Christian is one who is no longer controlled by the sinful nature. The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now... By dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. When a person dies in Jesus Christ, they are born again. Literally, in the Greek, they are born from above. They are a new creation. They are something that did not exist before, ever in the history of the world. They are a new creation. And every human being is different from every other human being. No two are exactly alike. And so when a person is born from above, all of the sin life is cut off. They are now clean in Jesus, washed by his blood. They are made into a new creature. The problem comes as that new person then goes back to the old ways 
and rebuilds what the Holy Spirit destroyed. But they continue to call themselves Christ followers, but in fact, they are simply do-it-yourselves, self-improvement people because they have grieved the Holy Spirit from their life. They no longer are in a crisis. They are comfortable with the world. And I've often said on this broadcast, they are then thoroughly vaccinated against righteousness. They are taught a lie that they're still saved and that this is the normal condition for a Christian. The result is powerlessness. And some wonder, why do some countries who are very poor have people who are very excited about Jesus, who have the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, while we in America, with all of the money, seem to have dead churches? How is it possible? Well, the answer is very simple. That person knows they must depend entirely upon Jesus for their food and their shelter. They must depend upon Jesus for everything. And so they have a living experience with the God of heaven. And they love him, and they serve him, and they worship him. And they don't continue to walk in rebellion and sin. They don't play with the devil. They don't do the devil's deal. They don't plunge into the dissipation of the world. They walk clean before God. In their business dealings, they're honest and above board. They don't cheat anyone. They don't lie. They don't steal. They walk clean before God. Now continue with me in chapter 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. Now we're in that portion of the book that will talk to us about what the law does. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting desire. You see, the law is righteous. The law is holy. It's not sinful. And when it comes to a sinner man, and it says to that sinner man, you cannot do that. Everything in that sinner man's heart is in rebellion. It rises up and says, you bet I can do that. You watch. I'll show you I can do that. And we're off to the races. There is a contention in the sinner man. You tell him what he should do, and he'll do just the opposite. You tell him what he doesn't have to do, and he'll go ahead and do it. There's a prideful contention that is hand-in-hand with the work of the devil in a person's life. It says, I found in verse 10 that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. So the commandment was given to teach us what righteousness was. Don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, don't have false gods, don't commit adultery, don't don't be sexually immoral. The law comes and tells us all of these things. And that darkness within us rises up and says, I'm going to do it anyway. I have to have it. I'm hungry. And we give way to that sinful nature. And the law was totally powerless to make us righteous. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying to the believers, look, the law could not make me righteous. Instead, the law simply pointed out my wicked heart and my sinful condition. Remember, this is a Pharisee speaking. 
This is a man who was very, very, very religious. This is a man who tithed everything. This is a man who kept the Sabbath law perfectly. This is a man who in all external ways was perfect in the keeping of the law. But in his inner man raged a war of bitterness and anger. So he recognizes that he is a sinner man. And he is utterly hopeless. Now, verse 11, For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, I want you to see in chapter 7, death is used in two ways. One, there is dying out to our sin, to the marriage with the devil. Yes, if you're still walking in sin, you are in a marriage relationship with the devil. You may be fighting with him, you may be trying to divorce him, but you are married to the devil. And there is only one way for you to escape that marriage, and that is to die. To die in Jesus Christ. That's one kind of death spoken of in the seventh chapter. The other kind of death is to continue walking with the devil in the wickedness. And surely in the end, you will end up being cast into the fire with the devil. It will be the devil and his wives who will be cast into the fire. Verse 12, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. I used to study a lot of Francis Schaeffer's material. He was a great theologian. I traveled to Weimar, Switzerland to study under him. He was especially interested in ministering to young people, to university and college-level people. And we asked him a question. How do you begin a conversation with a non-Christian? an agnostic, or an atheist. He said, I begin by asking them questions about their worldview. And then he said, after we've explored their worldview, I ask them questions about where their worldview will finally lead them in the end. And he said, then I point out what Nietzsche said about philosophy, or Camus. Remember that? French philosopher by the name of Camus who taught that when you're driving down the road and there's someone in the street and you hit them with your car, it doesn't matter because there is no moral value to either living or dying. That is Camus coming to the absolute end, even as Nietzsche did and finally committed suicide. This is the death of sin. And Paul is saying, through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. In other words, the law was given to bring us to an absolute end of ourselves or to close every mouth before a holy God. Now, the the problem is, what will it take to bring you to the end of yourself? of your sinning self. If I were to ask you, how are you with Jesus? You would probably answer, oh, I'm fine. And then if I were to press you a little bit more and say, are there areas that you're struggling in? Most of you would answer yes. And you would probably say something to me like, 
there are areas I have to work on. Translated, that means, there are areas of my life that I have not gained victory over. I am still walking in sin. And your perspective on that is that I must continue to work on those areas as though you were working to build up a skill set. We Americans are great on building up skill sets. We go to college. We go to grad school. We go to all kinds of measures to take seminars and workshops and advanced training so that we can improve our skill set. And so many of you go to church on Saturday or Sunday, and you're watching for the pastor to give inspiration, certainly, and you also want him to talk about strategies for success. Because you would like to have success in overcoming all of the areas of deficiency in your character. So it's a self-help process. And if I were to take you down to the local Christian bookstore, and we were to look together at the titles, you would discover that three quarters of all the titles in that local Christian bookstore have to do with strategies for living successfully. Self-help is very big today in America. We're very entrepreneurial when it comes to the Christian faith. We somehow have bought into the lie that righteousness comes by hard work. I want to disabuse you of that unbelief. Righteousness comes as a free gift from Jesus Christ. Real righteousness. Life-transforming righteousness that causes us to no longer walk in any rebellion against God. It's not something you have to work on. Sin is something that must be cut off. It's something we must die to, literally. We must die to it. And when we die to it, it is removed by Jesus. And it no longer plagues our heart. We're set free. Now, will we be tempted? Absolutely, forever. Will even sometimes the old nature come back to life and rise up in our spirits? Yes, until we're entirely sanctified, it will. But Jesus was very clear in speaking through his apostle, that you will never be brought into a situation of temptation where there is not also a way of escape provided to you by God. So then he begins in this famous 14th verse, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. He's speaking in the present tense. But let's be clear, there is what is called the analytic present or the historical present. Haven't you ever been with friends and you begin retelling a story and you tell it in the present tense? I've done that many times. I speak as though it were happening again all over as I am sharing the story of some past occurrence. He says, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do. But what I hate I do, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. Now, are we to assume or to believe that the Apostle Paul is saying that after he has seen Jesus Christ and been anointed and filled with the Holy Spirit and given his life and ministry, that he is still living in sin. I'll show you in just a moment that is utterly insane. Verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me. 
And then because he doesn't want you to miss what he's saying, he says, in my spiritual nature. But you remember what he said in Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So if Christ lives in him, is Jesus Christ sinning in Paul? I don't think any of you want to say that. He's saying in Galatians that he is dead and that Jesus Christ now lives in him. It is the abode of Jesus Christ. His his body, his mind, his spirit is the dwelling place of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ sinning? Verse continues, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do, I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, is it it is no longer I doing it, but sin living in me that does it. Now, what I want you to see is that he is speaking as a Jewish man who is under the law. This was Paul's experience. This was how Paul lived. Perfect in his outward behavior, as far as anyone knew, but inside he was burning up with bitterness and anger, and we see that even in his behavior that was considered holy, even though it was very unholy, as he went to Damascus to take captive Christians to bring them back for trial and execution. And that's when Jesus met him and said, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus. Verse 21, so I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. So in his inner being, he delights in God's law. You notice it does not say, in my inner being, I delight in Jesus Christ. Does not say that. He says, I delight in the law. But when he dies to the law, he no longer delights in the law. He delights in Jesus. He lives under the Spirit, not the law. I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And so what Paul is saying is, look, before I knew Jesus Christ, I was bound by this law of sin. Now the question is, did Paul say in the scriptures that he was released from that law of sin Or, as a Christian, is he still bound under that law of sin? And if he is still bound under that law of sin, then Gnosticism is what we should be teaching. But he was not under the law of sin as a Christian. And if you are under the law of sin today, and you walk in rebellion against the Most High, you have not yet been crucified with Christ. Or you went back after your salvation and you rebuilt the works of the law, the sin, and you are now under the law once more. Sin brings us back under the law. God does not play a shell game. He doesn't pretend righteousness. He makes righteous. Now notice. I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law. But in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. 
Now verse 24. What a wretched man I am. I remember when I was a child. I tried my best to do what my parents wanted me to do. But there was just something in me. I was a rebellious young man. So at Halloween, my brothers and I would go to the garden and gather as many rotten tomatoes as we could. And we'd head out to the highway. And in the dark of night, after night had fallen on Halloween night, we would throw rotten tomatoes at the passing cars. It was exciting because they'd screech their brakes and they'd stop and they'd jump out and they'd try to shine their flashlight and catch us. They'd even chase us, leaving their car beside the highway. And of course, we knew the woods and they didn't and they couldn't catch us. There were other things that I did that were sinful before God, fighting bitterly with my brothers, disobeying my parents, stealing on occasion when it seemed helpful to me, manipulating, lying. And yet in my heart, I wanted to be a good man, a good boy. I wanted to grow up and be a holy man. I knew I wanted to be a pastor. And my dad's answer would be to give me a strapping and then say, Raymond, you must try harder. I tried as hard as I could, and I couldn't do it. Went off to high school. I was an angry young man because of the way I was treated. I was a farm boy going to a very sophisticated boarding academy. My parents sent me there because they wanted to prepare me for the gospel ministry. So it was a Christian boarding academy. Most of the kids there had money. Their parents bought them all the latest clothing. My parents sent me off to boarding academy with bib overhauls to wear. I was utterly humiliated. Everybody else was wearing what they called short jeans. And even worse, I had to work in the kitchen scrubbing pots and pans. And so I'd never had a sister, and I was extremely shy. And all the girls would torment me, throwing wet rags at me, embarrassing me, laughing at me. I was angry. And as a kid growing up, I'd been the youngest of three brothers. And I learned to fight. And I would fight at the drop of a hat. I didn't believe in talking. I believed in punching. So when I grew angry, I would begin to punch. And I got beat up many times, and I also administered many beatings. Well, in school, in this Christian school, I was sitting in a chapel service one day, and the Spirit of God fell on that place. Chapel ran almost all that day and all that night. There was much weeping. I was sitting in my seat like a frozen ice cube. And in my heart I was saying, Lord, if this is real, if you are real, I'm asking you to please take away my anger. And he took away my anger. It was gone. And I have never again since that date been in a white-hot anger like I used to go into. It was just simply gone. The Holy Spirit sovereignly came down, and there was peace in my heart. I no longer had hatred toward classmates. I no longer wanted to fight with anybody. In fact, many times after that, I was challenged, and I simply turned and walked away. 
And I said, if you want to fight, that's okay, but go find somebody else to fight with. I'm out of here. And I'd walk away. I didn't need to fight anymore. The anger was gone from my heart. Jesus came that day. He changed me. I believe it was that day I became a Christian. But I was still very much caught in having to try hard. And so I tried hard. All the way through college and graduate school, I continued. And then as I was pastoring in a congregation in Rockville, Maryland, I began to get a hold of a of a whole new idea. There was a stirring of what they called the gospel in my denomination. I invited one of the proponents of this new gospel to come and preach in my church. Hold a seminar in the afternoon. And I'll tell you what he taught. He taught us that justification was a legal word and that all of our past, present, and future sins were forgiven and that now we were free, we were saved, and we could continue walking in our sin and we should not have any guilt about our sin. You don't need to continue repenting. You don't need to continue doing anything because you're saved. You are covered by the grace of God. Boy, I leaped at that, or I leapt at that like a drowning man. I left that denomination. I, in fact, was fired from that church because of bringing that pastor to preach that word, because it went against the law belief of that of that denomination. And so I left and became very much caught up in the Dutch Reformed Church. And for a number of years, pastored with the Reformed theology as a seeker-sensitive church. But as I moved forward in that, a great longing came into my soul. I would, I would now pray, and there were no answers. I would struggle before God. There were no answers. I would go to my board and we would vote on the plans for the next year. And then we would ask God to bless our plans. And the church was very successful. Money flowed easily. People were very excited. It was a rock and roll, go-go church. But I sensed a complete absence of the Holy Spirit from my life. And it was in the agony of that that I finally said, I'm going to begin to pray. And I set aside one hour a day to go and pray in my bedroom. I had to find out if God was real. Oh, I read the scriptures and I could preach the sermons and I could pray publicly, but I didn't pray privately because it was of no use. If if there's no answer to your prayer, why pray? I don't pray to exercise in yoga. I don't, I don't meditate to clear my mind as a Buddhist. No, I'm interested in praying because I need answers. And if no answers come, then I'm not going to play the game of, of prayer. So I prayed for one hour a day, demanding from God the answer that I desired. And as time passed, that prayer time began to stretch out into two hours and three and four and five and six and seven and eight. My church began to complain that I wasn't doing my work. My staff members were complaining that I wasn't doing my work. All I was doing was praying and I was getting off track and the church was floundering and people didn't like the new sermons that I began to preach because out of that prayer time, God began to convict me of my sin. 
I had pushed the conviction of sin far from my heart. And what I didn't realize is that when I pushed the conviction of my sin far from my heart, I also pushed the Holy Spirit far from my heart. For the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction. And when we believe a lie, there is no conviction. Thus, there is no Holy Spirit presence. God finally answered my prayer in a very concrete and specific way. And that began a journey of some seven years of not having any ministry public. During that time, I lost everything, my savings, my house, two houses, two cars. We lost everything. Savings, retirement. We lost everything, but we found Jesus. Paul says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? The body of death is the body of a man or woman who continues to walk in their sin. But because of the false teaching of the Reformed Church, American Christians have been paralyzed in their faith. They have been paralyzed in righteousness. And until a great conviction of God begins to come upon our hearts and we recognize that the building is on fire, that the earth is on fire, and we have to have a deliverance until we recognize that. We're just doing self-improvement. Trying to resuscitate a dead body. So again he says, Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, that is, being crucified with our Lord, we are delivered from this body of death. There is no other way to be delivered from the body of death but to give up your life, to utterly, totally, completely surrender your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. And I want to ask, have you resolved in your heart, have you resolved to dedicate all of your life to God, all of your thoughts, all of your words, all of your actions? Have you been thoroughly convinced that there is no middle ground? There is no middle ground. You cannot be a sinning Christian. I wish chapter 7 had not ended there. As you know, the chapter divisions and the sentence divisions are put in after, years after. They are artificial. Chapter 7 continues, therefore, in chapter 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Paul is saying, I have been set free from the law of sin and death. In chapter 7, verse 14, and on we dealt with the law of sin and death. That means there's no good thing dwelling in me. And I do what I do not want to do. I do not do that which I want to do. It is sin working in me. It is that law of sin and death. And Paul is saying, I have been set free by the, from the law of sin and death for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Jesus did not suffer on Calvary all of the sin punishment that was due to the world. It was not God punishing God. It was God offering a sacrifice, an atonement sacrifice, the Lamb of God 
So he condemns sin and sinful men in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. In other words, what the law could not do in making a man righteous, the precious blood of Jesus will do for you if you will give up your life and be crucified with Jesus. If you will utterly devote yourself to him. In verse 6, chapter 8, the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, so you are not under the law. Yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness, real righteousness, not make-believe righteousness. Verse 13, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. That's what I mean when I say the world is on fire. Everyone in the world is going to die who lives according to the sinful nature, including the sinning Christians. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now next week, I'm going to deal with what does it mean to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Now I invite you to come on Sunday at 12 noon and be with the National Prayer Chapel for our time of prayer and fellowship, the preaching of the word, We meet at the All Saints Anglican Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. It's located on 95 South. We're just right off 95. The address is 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com nationalprayerchapel.com and you'll get directions to come to the National Prayer Chapel and also our address for mailing us whatever the Holy Spirit prompts you to give. Now let's pray. Spirit of the living God, Lord Jesus, would you bring this message home in power to the life of every person who is listening Would you break the lie that we can continue to walk in sin before you and still call ourselves Christians? Lord, turn our hearts toward you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. God bless you. I'm Pastor Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'll talk to you soon.